All right, I'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to declare your word and uh, just rejoice that you use fallen, broken vessels like ourselves, Lord, to carry such immense, glorious truths and, and fill one another up and encourage one another in your word. Lord, I pray that you would be with us and that you would cause our minds to focus on you, cause us, Lord, to be able to engage your spirit, that he might teach us and might cause these things to actually impact our lives, Lord, that we wouldn't just increase in knowledge, but Lord, we'd increase in wisdom or the, the application of that knowledge in our own lives. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will see our own sinfulness today and that doing so we'll see your glory even more and uh, that you would use that to change our hearts. It's in your son's name, amen. We were in uh, Genesis 39 and covering the story of Joseph in Egypt and uh, I'm just going to start kind of at the beginning of the chapter just as a review. We kind of stopped at verse 6 abruptly. And for that, I apologize. We're going to attempt to get through chapter 40. So we'll see how that goes. So in verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 39, we're given the situation of where Joseph is. We're presented with the fact that his brothers have entered into the trade of human trafficking with their own second to youngest brother. Joseph has been removed from his family. He has been sold to a foreign country or sold into a foreign country. He's now owned by the chief bodyguard of Pharaoh where he's a slave and he's separated from everything he ever knew before. He has no way of contacting or interacting with those who came before him or that he knew before. And at this point, there's no hope of him ever being freed. There's no, from a human perspective, there's no indication that he would ever be able to get out of this situation. And yet, in the midst of this, in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. And he's with Joseph and he becomes, because he is with Joseph, Joseph starts having some success. And we covered the fact last week that there are different types of blessings from God. His presence doesn't always bring about a material or an a, uh, advancement in life and in position and status type of blessing. Uh, but in this case, we see that Joseph gets one of those things. He gets this managerial blessing, but part of the blessing of Joseph is that Potiphar receives material blessing. But just because there's a lack of visible blessing in your life doesn't mean God is, is not with you. In fact, if you are short-sighted enough but have a little bit more insight here of what's about to happen in chapter 39, this blessing of God we showed was actually going to be to the point where Joseph is now going to end up in prison because of the rising to the position of, of power within the household and because of the interactions he has in that position. This was all setting up Joseph to have yet another great fall. All because God is with Joseph, bad things were going to happen. So don't assume the lack of visible blessing in your own life or the lack of progress, the lack of, of prosperity 
means God is not with you. That's not the case. So, the idea that God is with Joseph then is given us as an explanation of why good things were happening for Potiphar and why Joseph was being advanced. It was because of God. It's not just because Joseph is a nice guy and Joseph has good qualities of a worker and he's willing to work. That is certainly true. Joseph had no reason to work hard, no reason to devote himself to Potiphar. Like I said, no hope of anything other than maybe to avoid a beating or avoid um, being noticed. Often being noticed is not a good thing. Certainly in our society, you have to be careful. Getting noticed, you're usually, the, I think of the whack-a-mole thing at, at, I guess it's Chuck E. Cheese now. I forget even what it was called when we were growing Showbiz up. Pizza. Showbiz pizza. and you smack the little, you put your head up, you're likely to get smacked. You got to be careful. Um, so God himself is, is working within Joseph, giving Joseph the opportunity. Certainly Joseph is, is at work being a good servant, being submissive to the authority that God has put over him. And we can all look at that, and we talked about that a little bit, that it isn't always easy to do that. But Joseph does, and, and God uses it to advance him within this household. So he becomes Potiphar's personal assistant. He becomes overseer of the whole house. Then he gets put in charge of all the possessions. And everything that Potiphar has, Joseph has control over. And it's just the presence of Joseph and the presence of the Lord with Joseph that blesses Potiphar. Joseph doesn't sit around and pout. He doesn't refuse to work or be difficult. He does his job and does it well. He understands his position and who he is. He is a slave. He is owned by Potiphar, and God has put him there. He also sees the blessing of Potiphar, but he doesn't lord it over Potiphar. There's no indication here that Joseph says, you realize everything you have here is because of me and my position with God. He doesn't do that. Potiphar sees that plain for himself. He doesn't demand better. He continues to be faithful and accepts where God put him. So God is working again to move Joseph into a position of prominence that he might put him in the best prison of the land. The federal penitentiary is where Joseph is headed because of all of this. Surely at this point, not what Joseph expected. So that gets us to, to verse 6 there. So I'll read, and we'll read through the end of the chapter here to get the complete story, or I'm sorry, through verse 18 to get the complete story. So he left everything he owned, Potiphar left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked and desired at Joseph, or looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in his house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside. 
She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me, and as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. So Joseph, or Potiphar's wife, wanted Joseph quite clearly, and she was very persistent in it. Joseph, on his side of things, understood his position regarding Potiphar and his position regarding God. His attitude towards that authority, we said last time, was a reflection of his attitude towards the ultimate authority of God. Potiphar was a pagan who was not believing in God, and yet Joseph submitted himself to that authority, because that authority, as we're told here, is ultimately the authority of God himself. Certainly a tough thing to stomach in our world with our government and maybe your own boss. The idea that God is the one who puts these things before us. And and one of the questions that you have to ask yourself in this day and age is, what of the government that they ask you to do, do you have a right to say no to? And I would, I would suggest there is a lot that we claim we get to rebel against and we get to complain about and we get to whine about, I'm as guilty as most, that we need to understand instead that's not the attitude that God would have us show. We as believers should be different. We should be more submissive to the authorities, not bucking and pulling at the reins and trying to overcome the authorities and what they want of us. Short of asking us to sin against God, short of asking us to do things that God would himself has told us don't do those things, there's not much ground we have to stand on biblically to say, no, that's not for me. I'm not going to do what they want me to do. So he understands that the, the, this authority, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? He understands who sin truly offends, and, and it is ultimately a God. And then he also understands that there are such things as great evil. And it's, it's something to, to grab all, a hold to there. You know, all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't a single sin that you can sin that doesn't, separates you from the eternal glory and greatness of God and his coming kingdom. We all need redemption from even the smallest of sins. Christ paid on the cross for all our sins. All our sins are needing for for redemption. All of our sins need the the punishment paid on our behalf or we will bear that punishment in, in eternity. In that regard, all sin is equal. However, there are such things as great evils, and Joseph makes that clear. And this would fall into that category. This is a great evil. This is one of those evils that, is, that, that affects the physical world that we live in to a greater extent than something that, that is 
has little effect on, on those around you or doesn't seem to have as much effect on those around you. Certainly, uh, adultery with your boss's wife would have far-reaching implications more than stealing a piece of bread from your boss. There's, there is a difference in those things or taking a work pen home with you with the intent to keep it forever. Things like that versus what Joseph here is being tempted with. And Joseph is being tempted, regardless of who she is, what she looks like, what type of person she is, there is the idea that she has some authority over him, and it might be good for him to, to succumb. So there's at least that temptation, and probably much more. But Joseph, Joseph shows resolve and determination. It's decided in his heart. He is convinced. He is acting. To be convinced of something means you have a conviction and it's going to actually cause you to act differently. He is convinced. He has a conviction that this is wrong. She's an evil woman and Joseph tries to avoid a great sin. And, and ultimately, when we get down to it, all of the bad things that could happen because of this sin, if it is found out, Joseph pays. So the cost of sleeping with Potiphar's wife would be that Potiphar would find out and either have him killed or thrown in prison. He would lose all possession that he has. He would lose anything he has in the way of possessions. Um, everything would be taken from him and he'd have to start all over again. Well, that's what happens. Those are the, those are the consequences of Joseph not succumbing to this temptation. There's still, in spite of him being an honorable man and being strong and, and resisting the devil here, he's going to pay the, the ultimate price except for his relationship with God. He will not sin against God. That's the one thing she is not able to get him to do. And it's the one thing that he doesn't lose in this. He doesn't destroy his relationship with God. Now, as an aside, we've had three stories about sex now. And I don't think that's by coincidence. We have the story of Reuben and, his, and Bil, Bilha, Bilba. I always forget. It's not Bilbo. Bilha. Bilha. We have the story of Reuben and Bilha. And you'll remember that's stepson, stepmother. First, firstborn of Jacob disqualifies himself as being the firstborn, basically, um, by this great sin. Then we have uh, the next story is Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. And that's not just Judah and Tamar. That's Judah and his sons and Tamar and the, the relationship there that's important um, being to carry on the family seed and what goes on between, and we won't go through it again. Um, I wasn't totally comfortable going through it once. We're not going to go through it again. Um, but you know the story if you don't turn back and review for yourself. And now we have Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And I think the text is telling us here that there is some really important things when it comes to sexual relationships. I think it teaches us that sex has a purpose, certainly in the story of Judah and his sons with Tamar. Ultimately, that purpose is to produce children, and in this case, to actually bring about the birth of the Messiah as he comes along those lines. 
And certainly as you look at the importance of carrying on your brother's line for you as though these children are his own. Um, So there are specific roles or specific purpose and an importance to sexual relationships. It's not an inconsequential thing. Now, as I'm going through this, I want you to think about what sex has become in our society. It has become an inconsequential thing. It's really not because we can now have the children in this room will be exposed to more explicit material than I heard someone say that the, the, than all of the explicit material that was present 100 years ago combined your children will probably be exposed to by the time they're in their teens, by the time they leave home. It's just staggering. And so there's this belief in our society that sex is, is not a consequential thing, that it ha- doesn't have an importance outside of your own enjoyment. That's not true, though. Sex is not an inconsequential thing. There are specific roles in the family that must not be violated and others that must be upheld. The lies in our society say roles are not important. Mother or stepmother, your brother and your relationship to your brothers, a father's relationship to his daughter-in-law, a wife's relationship to her husband, all these things are extremely important and all of these things do in fact in one way or another revolve around the sexual relationship that produces children. We're shown here that sex is not meant to be for personal gratification. In the in the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah's just had a long day in the field and that's what he wants and so he's like, "Hey, I'm going to stop here at the temple prostitute." But this is teaching that you can't separate sex from the relationship. Even in the pagan life of of Potiphar and his wife, Potiphar understands fully what Joseph has done to him in the story that his wife gives him. Now, it's not true, but the story that his wife gives him, Potiphar sees that and knows that this is wrong and has to respond, not only because of what Joseph has done, but because the effect it has on Potiphar. Potiphar is basically embarrassed here by this Hebrew, and that's, that's behind the whole story his wife gives him is, you need to understand, he sinned against you, Potiphar. He came into your household, this Hebrew that you brought here, and he did this to me, and everyone knows about it. And you can't tell me there's a guy in this room that wouldn't feel anger, but at the same time, some shame that he himself has a wife who is unsatisfied with him. You can't separate it from the relationship. Even in that pagan situation, that's clear. Sex is not... Another one of the lies is that sex is not for procreation. Clearly in the story of Judah and Tamar, the whole thing that was supposed to happen is children were supposed to come out of that relationship. In fact, the the second son is killed because he's trying to avoid that. Now he's trying to avoid doing what his responsibility is and carrying on his brother's name. But that action of sex actually brings that about. And there's a lie that says that's not what it's about. 
It's not about building of a family. It's not about producing offspring. It's not at which God has commanded us to do. It's something totally separate from that. And then, sex outside of its proper place doesn't have consequences. That's the last lie that we're told. So we're told that roles aren't important between uh, family members and extended family. We're told that uh, sex can be just for your own personal gratification, that it is separate from any kind of a relationship, that it is not for procreation, it's for pleasure, and that, it's out, that outside of its proper place, it's okay because there are no consequences. And you can't tell me our society doesn't teach those things today. You can't tell me that Genesis 36 through 39 is not incredibly relevant to the same struggles we have in this day and age, maybe even far more than, than what they faced then. But the same struggles do exist now, and, and, and you need to look at your own heart, and you need to consider what it is, how it is you actually view sex, and does it line up with God? Are you as convinced as Joseph was that this is wrong, and this is a sin against God, and God is not mocked? I just challenge each one of us. I challenge myself. All of us live in this world where it's far too easy to have these attitudes about sex. Those of you with children, uh, it is a challenge. I don't think I necessarily did a great job in, in teaching this to my children. I don't think I, and a lot of that had, did I see the true dangers that were there and understand them? And you just have to read these three stories and realize how messed up things were all because of their attitude about this subject. It's probably enough on that. So 19 through 23. Now, when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spoke to him saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. So Joseph, who is still standing, and it, it's, it's where it says the Lord is, was with Joseph in 21, that's huge, that's the Lord is still, Joseph is still standing in the presence of God. He is still with God. He has not lost this. Regardless of the penalty he paid for being a righteous man, he didn't lose that closeness with God. It makes you think of what happened on the cross when Christ stands and gets punished for something that he didn't do and does lose the presence of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As God turns his back on his only son. Here, we don't see Joseph being sunk to that level. God is still with Joseph and he's still being encouraged by the, the situation around him as it's changed just by Joseph walking into the prison. So Joseph is in prison. Potiphar is humiliated. But he really has no choice but to send Joseph to prison. He's, he's stuck I suspect, just based on what I've seen in, in my short lifespan, uh, 
that Potiphar's wife, this is not the first time she's a bad person, that Potiphar probably should have fully realized this and seen what Joseph meant. But even if he did understand that Joseph, that God was with Joseph, he really has no choice here but to punish him. Probably should have killed Joseph. Joseph probably should have been done. He's not. He's put in prison instead. And I, I'd, I'd like to think if we're going to be a little bit loose with the scriptures, which is always dangerous, I'd like to think that, that Potiphar saves Joseph's life here and sends him to prison instead. But it's good for Hollywood, maybe not best for preaching on Sunday morning. So, the jailer then, or I'm sorry, um, Joseph is once again blessed by God. And once again, the master in charge of him takes note of it. So, God then causes the, the master of the prison, the, the chief jailer, realizes who or realizes the blessing that is Joseph and gives him favor. And this favor that he has is actually given to him by God. God basically influences the chief jailer to uh, find favor with Joseph. So Joseph is now serving a jailer. He's taken a step down. He used to just be, he worked his way up from from slave from another country up to the point of running the house of Potiphar, one of the greatest households that would be in Egypt among the working class. And he is now to a point where he's in a jail and he's, the same thing starts happening. And, and we see that Joseph now is serving the jailer. Joseph does not deserve to be there. We're going to see in chapter 40, Joseph knows full well he doesn't deserve to be there. In fact, we're going to see in chapter 40, Joseph still has faith that God is going to do all the things that he said he's going to do. He's still hanging on to God's promises. And he's still being a good servant. God is continuing to be with Joseph and kind to Joseph. It just makes me realize how impressive Joseph here is here and how very often I fall in these areas. Um, so the jailer takes note of him and, and he puts everything in charge or puts Joseph in charge of everything. Um, Joseph is responsible for all of it and he's managing the entire jail now. Uh, you, you can look ahead in the story, which I think is okay because you can't really spoil the story what happens in the end with Joseph, because we've all been raised with it. But Joseph here is being given the opportunity now a second time to learn about how to manage and how to take care of large responsibility and deal with people in general, because that's the eventual job that God has for Joseph. God has for Joseph, you're going to rule over an entire nation. In fact, one could argue that Joseph holds, is going to end up holding the, the highest level of office, certainly until Solomon's day, and maybe even beyond that, um, as far as breadth of the world in which Joseph has an impact on once the famine comes. So God is training Joseph for that position. He's not just saying, Joseph, you're my man. I'm just going to take you directly from, boy, you're an obedient, good little boy who does what I ask him to do and you believe in me and I'm going to put you in this position. Joseph is, keeps getting knocked down again and again, but given the opportunity 
to raise himself up and do the things he needs to do, be the kind of servant that he needs to be, and take care of those around him and manage the situations that he's in, starting with a household and now moving into an entire jail. So verse chapter 40 then, let's read through 1 through 8. Then it came about, after these things, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? And they said to him, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. All right. So, the the character that I actually want us to, to look at beyond Joseph here is Pharaoh. And the reason I think that's important is because we're going to see what the role of Pharaoh has, and we're going to learn some things about Pharaoh that for us isn't as important as it would be for the original hearers, because the original hearers would understand they had an interaction with Pharaoh as well. So the original hearers of this text, when it was codified, when it was written down by Moses and given to the people of Israel, their interaction with Pharaoh was, he made them make bricks. He wouldn't let them go out and worship. He made them make bricks with no straw. He, he, he chased them down and tried to kill them all. And it took multitude of plagues, not multitude, 10 plagues, um, to to actually get him to release them. They were not impressed with Pharaoh, and they understood who Pharaoh was. And I think this is, <clears throat> Moses is, is bringing this, this specific issue out of who this Pharaoh, who Pharaoh is, who the king of Egypt is. Now, this is a different line than the one that would have held the, the people in prison or in captivity 400 years later. But the position is the same, and he's teaching them something about the sovereignty of God by illustrating something about the sovereignty of kings. And the reason I bring that about or bring that up here is because the thing starts with in, in verse 1 of chapter 40, it's a baker for the king of Egypt and the cupbearer that had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Verse 2, Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, we aren't told exactly what has happened here. But the fact is, in verse 3, you offend Pharaoh, you're thrown in confinement. You're thrown into confinement, you're thrown into jail, you're locked up. So Pharaoh gets mad at his baker and his cupbearer and has them jailed. The jailer, in turn hands him over to Joseph and puts Joseph in charge of them. But it's an, interesting, it's an interesting position. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them and Joseph took care of them and they were in confinement for some time. So it's not just that the captain of the bodyguard, the, 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 the 
warden of the jail says, Joseph, you're in charge of these two. And Joseph says, okay, I'll tell them where the room is and I'll make sure they are, they're good little prisoners and make sure they don't cross any of the lines, break any of the rules. It actually, the picture here is that Joseph is put in charge of them and then turns around and takes care of them. He ministers to them. He, he is a servant to them. And it's an amazing position. Joseph, who, doesn't, who knows he doesn't belong to even be there, has these two others come to him, not clear as to what it is they've done to offend the king. The king, in his sovereignty, has thrown them into prison, and Joseph comes alongside them and takes care of them. It's really pretty amazing. He's now serving the chief jailer as well as those who are in the jail, in spite of everything he has been through. And we see that carry on then after they tell them their, their dreams. So down in, in verse 9, we'll learn more here. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. You'll notice that when, when that Joseph, I'm sorry, in verse 8, when Joseph sees the way he actually takes note of, you don't look well today. There's a problem here. You guys look like something's up. So he's actually taking the time to actually notice his fellow prisoners who, who he is serving, even though he has authority over them. He's serving these people, and he notices enough. He serves them enough and cares enough to notice that they're in some sort of distress, something I'm not very good at doing, for sure, convicting for me. Um, sees their distress and cares about them, and offers them a solution. And that solution is that God actually interprets dreams. Um, now, he doesn't say it, but he says, yeah, the thought here is God interprets dreams. And by the way, I, I, God and I are pretty close, so why don't you tell me what your dreams are? So he's offering them a solution. He's doing everything he can to help them. It just is a, it's a an amazing position that Joseph has taken, and it kind of gives you some insight as to how does this man move up? How is it the second time in a row that God has caused those around him who are in authority to look on favor? And it's kind of like, well, this is the type of guy that you're super impressed with. He's got managerial skills. He does what he's told. He works hard. Everything that you give him, he prospers in, and yes, that's some of God, but also, the, again, the work and striving that Joseph is doing. He really seems to care about the people that are around him, even though his life sucks. It's a bad life. But here he is being such a positive influence on those people around him. And, and along with that, he's learning all these managerial skills. So we see him actually go to these two, interact with them in their distress, and offer to help them with with true, real, honest help. So verse 9, So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine there were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. 
Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was, in fact, kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. So we're given the dream, and we're given the interpretation of the dream, and it's a good, it's a good thing. The, the dream of the cupbearer is that the cupbearer is going to be restored in three days. But what's really the most interesting thing here, I think, isn't that, that Joseph is able to interpret the dream. It's that Joseph believes the interpretation of the dream. Why wouldn't Joseph believe the interpretation of the dream? Well, what was the first dream we're told that Joseph had? Okay, he and his brothers, right? And what happens in, in the first couple dreams? What's that? Yeah, so since his first two dreams, which are someday all of you brothers of mine, including my little brother and my parents, are going to bow down to me. And I'm just telling you guys, that's what the dream is. And it gets him into a lot of trouble, if we remember right. He is nowhere near that coming true. He is, he is advancing in years. He's probably twice as old now as he was then. Half of his life since that dream, it just keeps getting worse. But Joseph here gets told a dream, and he says with confidence, this dream is from God, and it will come to pass. This is what happens in three days. I'm so sure of it that when you get there, you tell Pharaoh who I am, and what's happened to me, and get me out of this place. I don't belong here. He's like the one person in prison who really didn't do it. Everyone in prison thinks they're innocent, from what I'm told. Haven't been there yet. Hopefully I don't go. Um, but we have here Joseph's confidence in dreams, which is only present if he truly is holding on with faith to what he has not seen, what God has promised him and shown him, he still believes will occur someday. As evidenced by the fact with the dream of the cupbearer and his confidence in that, he believes his own dreams as well. In the future there is hope, he has faith in it is what not yet been seen. Joseph then asks to be remembered and he declares his innocence. Can't really blame the cupbearer again. The cupbearer probably had heard a lot of people say how they were innocent and didn't belong. The cupbearer believed he was innocent more likely than not and didn't belong there either. And so the cupbearer here is, is charged by Joseph who just relieved him of this great distress. Remember me. So then we have the dream of the baker. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. and the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, I don't understand that dream. Sorry. <laughs> no, he didn't, did he? Yeah. Um, how many in here would have been tempted to say that? Um, it's a challenge. Again, Joseph believes in what God gives these men in their dreams. Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you 
and you will hang on a tree and birds will eat your flesh off of you. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So Joseph interprets the dream for the baker. The baker came to him with hope. And Joseph said, yeah, the king's going to lift up your head. Joseph doesn't hesitate here to state the will of God. He has to know the way this is going to be for the chief cupbearer now, or the chief baker. The next three days, the chief baker is just going to be going, this kid doesn't know what he's talking about. There's no way or this man, he's not a kid anymore. It just can't be. Um, but Joseph, all the same, just states exactly what the facts are. Just as he did once before to his own father, and his father's response is, do you really think you're going to reign over me someday? That makes no sense. According to Eastern culture, not going to happen. And now Joseph is saying, you're going to die in three days. And it's not going to be a pretty death. Not only is he blunt, but he's graphic. The interpretation is really horrific. Uh, my mine's, uh, translation says that he's hung. Does anyone else's translation say something different? Some of them say he will impale you on a staff or a pole and cut off your head. There's, that's a little different than being hung. I like the New American. <laughs> I like the idea, oh, he's hung. Um, I don't know which it is. I suspect, I have a lot of, I really like the New American Standard. I think they do a really good job in interpreting some of these things. And Anyway, um, we're going to go with hanging. Um, but either way, people don't like to hear blunt truth. They don't. And it, it, unless it's how awesome they are. And then people really like it. But this is not something, I mean, the, the cupbearer, great truth. Hey, you're going to be set free. The baker, hey, you're going to either be impaled or hung, one of the two. Um, and sorry. And, and it isn't, the, the, the delivery of the interpretations are the same, in the same tone, the same matter of fact. But the second one is, is really brutal. But Joseph understands his role. The dreams aren't Joseph's to give. The interpretations don't belong to Joseph. Joseph doesn't get to sugarcoat it. Joseph doesn't get to say, hey, I don't know, maybe three days from now isn't going to go well for you. Um, we'll have to see, but there's a chance those bird things are, maybe they're eating your head. Um, I, we don't know. Sometimes these dreams, they just don't work out like that. How often do we ourselves try and take the truth and make it more palatable for those that we're told to give it to? There's certainly a skill in being able to communicate to somebody something that is of heavy weight, that I'm, I'm good at being blunt. I'm not very good at being the caring, kind person that we saw Joseph being at the beginning of this, and certainly he had a relationship with these two men that he cared about, 
that's, that's shown by his noticing of their needs and, and stepping in and trying to help. But um, those of us who are like me and you're more blunt, work on the caring part. Um, those of who are really caring and it keeps you from being blunt, work on the blunt part. We all tend to fall somewhere along that line. <clears throat> and I'd also point out that just because Joseph was blunt, he wasn't uncaring. Joseph actually really cared about these men, I think. And I think we're shown that. Now, the other thing here is that the, the dreams do come to pass. And, and we're back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is really, again, the overriding character in this besides Joseph. And that's Pharaoh lifts up their heads. Now, I always thought that was a positive thing, right? There's a song. Actually, we're going to sing a song from Redemption Songs, Jars of Clay, right? There's another song on there that I didn't realize was written by them until I was looking at it this week, and it's called God Will Lift Up Your Head. And I love that song. That song in times of trial, in times when I just, I'm really struggling, um, it's a great reminder to me that you keep doing what it is that God has called you to do, and he'll take care of the rest. It's even probably better than the Keith Green song, he'll take care of the rest. But it's, it's maybe just because just it's not humorous. <clears throat> but God will lift up your head. The words of that, give to the wind your fear, hope, and be undismayed, because God hears your sighs and crowns your tears. He will lift up your head. Leave to his sovereign sway to choose and to command. Then shall we, wandering on his way, know how wise and how strong. The implication being God is how wise and how strong. Through waves and clouds and storms, he gently clears the way. Wait, because in his time, so shall this night soon end in joy. It's actually really good prose. But the whole idea there is that Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing, Joseph, and God will take care of the troubles and the trials and everything going around you that seems like it's going crazy. God will step in. He will lift up your head. I left out the chorus, but the chorus is basically lift up your head. He'll lift up your head. He will be the one who holds you up. And the implication is to honor, to have your head lifted up is not necessarily a good thing. Pharaoh here in 20 to 23 as the dreams are fulfilled, <clears throat> it states that he lifts up the head of the cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He raises them up to be not just honored, one honored and restored, and one punished. Both are lifted up to be demonstrated who they are and their standing with the king. Certainly, if God is to lift you up, you want God to lift you up into a place of honor, not a place of dishonor. Everyone eventually gets lifted up. Another picture of it is everyone eventually raises from the dead and God judges the righteous from the unrighteous. All of us will face God lifting up our heads. And here we have the Pharaoh who has not only the authority to throw these two men into jail, but to take them out of jail and to execute one of them in a horrific way and the other one restore to a place of prominence and, and, and really in the kingdom, a, a place of, of glory and importance. Pharaoh has that sovereignty available to him. Pharaoh is able to act according to his own will. 
And his actions, though, as we look at this story, all fell in line with God's plan. As we see this, chapter 41, Pharaoh's going to have a dream. And because of everything that Pharaoh did here in throwing the cupbearer and throwing the chief baker in prison and eventually executing one and restoring the other, all those acts are according to Pharaoh's will, but all of those actions fall in line with the plan of God. If you, if you look at Proverbs 16.9. There we go. The mind of a man puts, plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And certainly we're seeing that. The mind of Pharaoh is planned exactly what he's going to do, but God is controlling his steps. Are you starting to see why this would be important to the people of Israel? Why they need this lesson early on when Pharaoh is first introduced in regards to the people of Israel in this story with Joseph. <clears throat> Excuse me. As, as Pharaoh is introduced here, God is teaching them something about, about Pharaoh. Pharaoh can decide what he wants to do and God will allow him to do that, but it's all still going to happen within the plan of God himself. And then Proverbs 21, it's something very similar, but more specifically, not just about all of us in general. 21.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. I just love the, um, the picture there in that uh, the channels of water in the hands of the Lord. It isn't just that, yeah, and, and just like we can move channels of water however we want, God can too. For us to move channels of water, big deal. Channels of water in the hand of the Lord, no big deal. He can move them however he wants. <clears throat> just like we can't move the heart of the king on our own, the heart of our rulers on our own, it would take a lot of strength to do that. God is actually able to manipulate and change things so that they all work out to his glory and his good. So we have this picture that Pharaoh's actions fall in line with God's plan in that Pharaoh, out of anger, jails two men and then one is restored and one is hanged and the interpretation is given and it's going to lead to the freedom of Joseph. In Romans 9, if you can turn there, do so. In Romans 9, we're going to be there for a little bit. We have Paul looking back at the idea that God is ultimately in control of rulers. I'll just read. Um, just so you know, there's a couple of quotes here in verse 14, 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's important that you know the context of that. Does anyone know when God says that to Moses, what the situation was? You'd think it was a time when God was going to act with wrath upon somebody. It's not. It's actually when Moses is asked, Lord, let me see your glory. And God says, I will have Mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. I get to decide who I'm nice to, who I display myself to is what that's from. And then in verse 17, then for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. 
God specifically speaking to Pharaoh about the fact that you're here so that I can show my ten plagues to the whole world and I am going to get the renown that you think you deserve. You need to understand I am the one who's ultimately in control. And what's interesting is he makes that statement to Pharaoh who then takes it and runs with it and causes the plagues to come on himself for his hardness of heart. But you can't read through the story of Joseph and not touch on the sovereignty of God and, and the providence of God in dealing with this young man and, and where he is at. So let me just read through what Paul says about this situation and we'll read through 23. So verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make him in the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. And we'll stop there. Pharaoh is sovereign over his people, but God is sovereign over Pharaoh is, is a lesson that is being taught in this, this chapter back in Genesis. Genesis 40. Pharaoh decides the fate of his servants. God is using his anger and his judgments to advance Joseph. God used the anger and judgments of Pharaoh to free and enrich his people prior to their exodus. If you remember, when they left Exodus, when they went on the exodus, the people of Egypt were so glad to see them go. What did they do? Does anyone remember? What's that? Yeah, they're like, take, go and take everything. Just please, just leave. It's just amazing what he does there. And so he frees and enriches, enriches his people using the anger and judgment of the Pharaoh. God can do these things because he is God. None of us get this power. None of us have this control. Oh my, the destruction we would bring about the earth if I was truly the one who got to decide everything. It would be horrific. So we should shut our mouths. Shame on us for questioning God and the integrity of God in this. If we do so, it's disrespectful and out of proper order because we are but creatures. God has the right to use his creation to demonstrate his attributes. God is, God is exercising that in chapter 40 over Pharaoh. He's exercising his control of the heart of Pharaoh. He's channeling Pharaoh's will and his own, the own characteristics and personality of Pharaoh. He's using that to accomplish his 
goal in Joseph's life, just like he's going to, just like he did looking back as it was written at the lives of the people of Israel. God uses vessels by having them do what they naturally do, by hardening their hearts. That should scare you. If you have a natural bent to a specific sin, understand God has the authority as God, as your creator, to take that and use it to accomplish his will by allowing you to be even more, name the thing that you have that that you fail in, allowing you even to be more like that so that you might produce the will of God. So he has the right to harden your hearts. By doing so, you're still accountable because you're doing the thing you want to do. God is just allowing you to do it all the more. The sad thing is, is that in all of this, as, as we look back on Genesis 40, it ends with, again, if it, I would love to, to be able to sit and watch somebody read this and not know this story. Um, we see that even through all of this amazing thing that the cupbearer walks through, he, he forgets Joseph. But why? Because it's not the proper time yet. God uses the forgetfulness, the, 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 the fact that the cupbearer doesn't truly appreciate Joseph, what Joseph has done to wait for the proper time. What if God, to display his glory, waits for the proper time? He's waiting for the proper time to lift Joseph. If you wanted to think of it simply, he's waiting for the seven good years that are going to come. In the meantime, Joseph is left stuck in jail till the end of next month because Matt's got the next few weeks. So with that, we'll pray. Lord, we just thank you so much. We thank you that you are a God who is in control and that ultimately uh, even the, the hardness of our hearts, whether it be our problems with anger or our problems with pride or our problems with uh, jealousy, Whatever it is, Lord, that you use those things to accomplish your will. You're certainly not the author of sin. You do not sin. Lord, I pray that that causes us to fear you and to fear our own judgment, that we might pursue you, that we would earnestly be on our knees praying that you would allow us to to work and to strive to be used by you in a way that brings you glory in spite of the pain and suffering it might cause ourselves in this life, Lord. I pray that we'd be focused on your eternal will and and your eternal kingdom and not just our own. In your son's name, amen.